Would you pray with me? Gracious Lord, on this Tuesday, we do lift up young Graham, seven years old, brain tumor. It's just, it's just so wrong. Um, it's not how the world should be, and it's, we know it's not how you desire the world to be. It's not how we desire the world to be. Um, but we make our way through day to day, knowing that we are walking in with you. We know that you are with us this morning as we return to the book of Acts and that your spirit has called us here. And we pray that your spirit will fill us with a deep sense of your presence with us and with energy and enthusiasm uh, today as we take this time that we have set aside for the study of your word. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, friends. So, I'm sorry. Jill, you go ahead and talk to me, honey. I have once already. Is that what John is saying to do? I'm sorry. We're having technical problems. Oh, yeah. I, I turned it off and soldered it up again already. I don't know. But it all looks good. Patty, I mean, it's flashing at me. Everything it's everything it normally does. Okay, so is there anything I would like to talk about before we get started today? Gary. Yes. Wow, okay, so that's awesome. So you know one thing I learned from Charles Stokes, and those of you remember Charles Stokes? The church is happy to take the devil's money. <laughs> yeah, that... That sounds like Charles, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it, it is. It's one of, one of his many. He had a thousand of them. He had 20,000 of them. Yep, 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 yep. Anything else y'all would like to chat about today before we plunge back in? Okay, well, I don't see anything, so we're going to go then um, while Patty tries to help the streamers get, get online. Um, so, we are in Acts chapter 4. And we are still in this extended story of Peter and John healing a man who's about 40 years old, has been crippled forever, and the consequences of that, their arrest, they're being told to, well, just don't do this anymore. Don't proclaim the name of Jesus anymore. And then they were released. and and. The believers prayed for, for their, um, that they would remain bold in the face of this, right? Which I think is such a telling point. It's always, whenever I've been asked to preach this passage, it's what I try to bring out. That they don't pray for security and safety and so forth. They pray for boldness. They don't want what happened to Peter and John to dissuade them from proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. And it can happen, of course, because they're like you and me. They're fearful. They don't, they don't want to 
the authorities to come and to arrest them. And so they pray, they pray for boldness. So if you would, oh, we're in chapter four. We're in chapter four. So let's look at the closing part of um, the prayer. Maybe we'll begin in verse 27. This is about midway through this lengthy prayer. And like Peter's testimony, the prayer is straightforward. Okay? Um, saying things as they are. So they say in verse 27, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you, that is God, anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. We are disciples of Jesus, like these people are disciples of Jesus, like them. Some of us are, have been at this longer than others have, but we are all disciples of Jesus. And all of us are given the responsibility to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, the good news about Jesus in how we live and in what we say. We can't be shrinking violets about this. Our world needs more from us, maybe than it has in the past. I don't know. Sometimes I worry I'm just getting old and curmudgeonly, but I think the world is in sore, sore need right now of hearing the good news of Jesus Christ, the true, the authentic, the, 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 um, the word about Jesus that's given us to us in the pages of Scripture. So as they pray for boldness, we can pray for boldness. And then they say in verse 30, stretch out your hand, they're talking to God, to heal, <coughs> to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And that, as I've talked about a couple of weeks ago, that name is essentially the same as Jesus. The name and the identity of Jesus are essentially the same. It's not a label. In our world, it's a label. I'm Scott. I could have been, my mother could have given me a different name, but she didn't. Names just don't carry. We don't accord names the same power and the same identity with the person that they do did in the ancient world. So in the ancient world, when, when somebody gives their name to someone else, it's a significant moment. So it, doing this in the name of Jesus is essentially doing this through the power of Jesus. Verse 31, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. The manifestations of God are clear and present. Clear and present. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. So this is a continuation of the story in Acts 2 with Pentecost. 
They're gonna. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. They've. Have you been? Any of you been in rooms where you just you just feel God at work in the room? The Holy Spirit is in the room, and the Spirit is high, and you've. You're just, you're just filled with a deep and abiding sense of God's presence. Well, I, I hope it's happened for you. Um, it should happen for us. I think sometimes we, we wall ourselves off a bit, right, and from that. And, and that's not good. So we, we do want to be filled um, with the Holy Spirit in a way that is discernible and and sometimes dramatic even. But the key is they spoke the word boldly. Okay? So then what's going to happen is Luke is going to give us another little glimpse inside the way that these people are living together. Right? Remember? They're, they're, they're living together, they're, as the days and weeks go by, months maybe, they're living together, they're finding a new way of life in Christ. So Luke writes, all the believers were one in heart and mind. You know, that's, that's Paul in Philippians 2. Paul says in Philippians 2, I want you to be of one mind with Christ Jesus. Who? Though he was in the, in, you know, um, form of God was born in human flesh and set that aside, his godness aside in essence and humbled himself and became obedient all, to the point of death, even death on a cross. Though these people are living in one heart and one mind and that is really the call for all of us Christians, you know. It's, it's a sad thing that we Christians are so often divided and it should not be that way across denominations, um, within churches. Um, one of the blessings to me about having been at St. Andrew for well nigh unto 25 years now is that I have found St. Andrew to often be remarkably of one heart and mind. Um, and though we've had a lot of people come and a lot of people go because this is a high turnover area and the church has grown a lot, I think the sense that we really are striving to be of one heart and mind is noticeable. So all the believers were of one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. This is something I learned from Charles Stokes, and I learned from Robert Hasley, and it, it took me a while to reorient myself. And I can remember talking with people who just refused to, to get this, that whatever I have in life, it really belongs to God, and, and I am the steward of it. I am, to use a better word, I am the trustee of what God has entrusted to me. And the question is, how will I use it in life? And if we cling too tightly to our possessions and it's all about me, 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 and look what I did, and these are mine, mine, mine. You ever seen the movie Finding Nemo? <laughs> With the little birds that go, mine, mine, mine. 
I have the strangest things that go through my mind when I'm teaching a Bible study. Okay, so yeah, <laughs> so, so they understand that the possessions they have are really not their own. They belong to God and they stand ready in heart and mind to use them for the good of, of others. They shared everything they had. They shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. They testified to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus because that is the linchpin in the whole thing. That is the foundational claim of all things Christian. If Jesus was resurrected, and you can't cross your fingers about definitions and things, if Jesus was bodily resurrected, passing through life to a life after death, and then a life after life after death, a re-embodiment into new life, if that happened, then it's a good thing we're all here. If it didn't happen, we're all wasting our time on Tuesday, and we could go down to Blue Goose and get, I don't know, get some lunch. But it is true, isn't it, my friends? It is, it is true. And I think that on Sunday mornings after Easter, I'm going to spend a few weeks on it. I've done it before. I've done it not that long ago, but long enough. I'm going to, talk, I'm going to spend a few weeks on the resurrection of Jesus because we live in a world which is filled with skepticism and denial about it. And, and we need to be armed it's not a blind leap of faith to, to affirm the truth of Jesus' resurrection. There is plenty of evidence for the truth of Jesus' resurrection. And some of the strongest is that you are here right now, today, 2,000 years later. But to talk about that more, you'll have to come to my Sunday class after Easter. So with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. That little bit right there, isn't that something? God's grace is poured out and is often manifested in the things that we do. We all, I think we sometimes think God's grace is all about pouring out on me and I'm forgiven and these, these sort of intellectual or emotional or spiritual things. But God's grace is being poured out on this community and then they are sharing what they have with each other in such a way that everybody has what they need. It doesn't mean everybody's got everything they could have. It doesn't mean there aren't richer and poorer people here. But everybody has what they need. This is a world in which many people lived on subsistence diets. They didn't have a lot to eat. They didn't go to bed with the kind of full belly that I do every night. Okay? They... they and they're going to make sure that everybody has enough. And this will be a theme for the Christians. When Paul 
is traveling the Mediterranean, right, the Eastern End, and he is visiting in churches and founding churches and so forth. He is taking up a collection among these Gentile churches for what? To send back to Jerusalem for the poor, for the needy, to make sure particularly be widows and orphans, in the Christian community in Jerusalem to bind the Jews in Jerusalem, the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem with the Gentile Christians around the empire. That's Paul's idea. We're going to use money. We're going to use money to help bind them together because talk talks but money walks. That's another. I don't know if that was from Charles Stokes or not, but yeah. From time, from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anyone who had need. So sometimes people will mistakenly say, well, these people are all just communists. That's not what's happening. This is, this is a utopian ideal. You know, you have to understand that the depiction of the early church is the utopian ideal. In the history of Christianity for the last 2,000 years, there have been many utopian communities that thought they could overcome in Christ the darkness that still resides in the human soul. And they all found that they could not. They all, all the utopian communities have failed. They've all, they've all, because, because we live between the times when yes, the kingdom of God is with us and yes, we have been forgiven and yes, we live in the age of the spirit, but at the same time, sin and death are still with us. So you have to live in recognition that both of those things are true. And some people, they just have, I don't know, a word I'll use is an idealistic view. Um, the fancy word is they have an overrealized eschatology. It means they, <laughs> how's that for, I love that, overrealized eschatology. It's almost as if they think Jesus has come and all those promises have been full, now fully manifest. Everybody can see it. Not true, not true. Indeed, sin and death is still with us, but they haven't won, right? God's victory's already been won. So, from, yes? Going back to verse 33. Yes? Where the apostles are preaching about the resurrection. Right. And then you were talking about being a Christian and denying the resurrection. I have such a tough time putting my arms around anyone. If what they, how they can justify calling themselves Christians and not believing in the resurrection. Well, you are very astute. And a person who doesn't believe in the resurrection should stop calling themselves a Christian. Okay? There is a German theologian. I'm searching through my mental Rolodex right now. <laughs> you can see the wheels spinning and the smoke coming. Gerd Ludemann, German theologian. Um, very, very intelligent guy, but he 
lost his faith in the resurrection. And what I admired about him was that he stopped calling himself a Christian at that point. Because it's clear, it could not be any more clear in 1 Corinthians 15 when Paul says, if it didn't happen, we've all believed a lie and we are to be pitied more than anyone. So, I know people come to church for lots of reasons, you become, but there's no point in being here and using the word Christian to describe yourself unless you believe that hallelujah, Jesus was resurrected on Easter Sunday because that, that fact changed everything because otherwise he died a failed would-be Messiah on a cross in Rome at the hands of Pontius Pilate. Not the first one. We're going to meet. We're going to meet some others who died at the hands of the Romans. You don't have to be careful. Do you think I'm careful? No. Well, they're just wrong. They're just wrong, and they. What, here's what you say to them. You are wrong. <laughs> Go home and read 1 Corinthians 15 a hundred times, and then let's, go, let's get together and talk. Can I say that to a bishop? Sure you can. What's a bishop? Thank you. See, see, we get all mixed up. What's a bishop? A bishop is there to serve. A bishop is an overseer. A bishop is there to serve. It's, it, it's, we, 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 we want to take the secular world's you know, organization structures and power structures and all that stuff and bring it to church. That's not, that's not it. Bishops are there to serve. They're there to serve the local church. The old, you know, we're not part of the UMC anymore, but the UMC Book of Discipline says that the mission is focused on the local church. It has to be because that's where everybody is. Everybody's in a local church somewhere. So the, all the rest of the structure in the UMC should be there to support the local church. And we left because it had been a long time since that was true. God bless Robert Hasley. If he were here today, he would tell you that it had been a long, long time since that was true. And he, he said he had a couple, a couple of good bishops but many of them were just not, and they didn't understand what they were there to do. They were there to make, help make St. Andrew successful, period. Call people here, feed the sheep, the rest of it. But to, it's easy to fall into the trap of enjoying your organizational prestige, right? So when you run into a bishop who tries to dance around the issue of the resurrection, perhaps by redefining it, you know, what does resurrection mean? Oh, it just means like this spiritual rebirth. I am censoring myself right now. Okay, yeah, yeah, I know. I, yeah, for this one I do. So I, I would call BS on that, okay? It's not what the word means. It's not what the Greeks meant by the word anastasis. It didn't mean spiritual. It meant you were walking down a beach and you ran into 
Jesus or you or whomever. For the Greeks, it would have been you were walking down the beach and you ran into... Who was that fighter that, 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 that um, Brad Pitt portrayed in a movie? Achilles. It's like you're walking to the beach and you run into Achilles. Now he's actually in the flesh. Right? That would be resurrection for them. They just knew it didn't happen. Because that, what? Everybody, everybody knows the dead stay dead. <gasps> but Jesus showed otherwise because he was resurrected. So be brave. Tell the bishop, 100, 1 Corinthians. Maybe have him write it out 15 times. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. So you really, I can't, this is just so important. I think many Christians don't understand the significance of the resurrection. Now let me just extend this because I will be in Acts for months anyway. <laughs> so, now let me ask you this. Let me ask you a question. What is the climax of God's rescue plan? Where is it in the story that we are made right with God. Is it in the resurrection? Patty's whispering because she knows. No, it's the cross. The cross is the climax of the story. The cross, the cross is the place of atonement. Jesus' faithfulness all the way to death, even death on a cross, whatever theory you might have about how, how Jesus' death on that cross made us right with God, that is the place. The resurrection you then is what? It's the evidence for that truth. That's why the resurrection is the linchpin. So actually what your bishop did, he did the unpardonable sin. He denied the Holy Spirit. Well, I, I don't want to get, that's such a strange phrase there in about the unpardonable sin, but I'm not going to say that denying the resurrection of Jesus is an unpardonable sin, even if it comes from a bishop. He's just, they're just wrong. They can't, uh, I'm going to finish with this, but um, Fleming Rutledge is an Episcopal priest and a scholar. She's now retired. Um, her writings are always worthwhile. I don't find her to be very much out there or anything. Um, but she uh, was being interviewed along with an atheist scientist type. And the two of them are there, and there's a, there's a moderator, and the atheist scientist type says, well, you know, my daughter has two PhDs, one in molecular biology and one in biophysics, to pick two things. How can you expect my daughter to believe in this resurrection of a, of a man. And Fleming Rutledge looked at the person and says, well, I don't know your daughter. How big is her imagination, <laughs> right? It takes a big mind to really allow in the prospect that there was someone 2,000 years ago who after dying wasn't just resuscitated back to their private, prior life, but brought through death to a newly embodied life never to taste death again. That takes a lot of 
It takes an open mind, a lot of imagination, a lot of willingness to, 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 to be, to avoid shrinking God down to someone who I can understand and fits the box that I have in mind for God to fit in. Okay, so, anything else? <laughs> oh man, I went on so long my iPad shut down. <laughs> so really, so I, I think I'm gonna, I've been toying, I've been wondering what I'm gonna do after Easter in my Sunday class, and I think I'm gonna talk about the resurrection. I think there's really, I think in the modern world, there's not much more that I can do for Christians than to strengthen and their confidence in the resurrection and give them some tools to have in their minds and hearts about the resurrection so that they can help explain to others, often family members, why it's not some blind leap of faith. You know. There's a great quote. There's only one person that could build a bridge to God with two pieces of wood, and that was Jesus. Yes, in fact, Jesus didn't just build the bridge, he is the bridge, right? Yeah. I, I couldn't hear that. Does that mean all practicing Jews deny the resurrection? Really sure, sure, sure. I mean, if you believed that Jesus was resurrected and you weren't a Christian, I'd have to wonder, well, how do you put that together? You can't, you can't really, <laughs> right. But they do believe in the resurrection, it just hasn't happened. Okay, so Patty's elaborating for us. She's reminding me that many Jews, particularly the more orthodox, believe they believe that the Messiah will yet come and when that Messiah comes the great resurrection of the dead will happen. Which is why on the Mount of Olives, which is where many of the more orthodox Jews believe that this Messiah will come first while there's all these Jewish graves on the Mount of Olives, just waiting for that day. If you go there, it's like a sea of white, all the limestone um, above ground graves. It's something to see. Okay, so, anyway, oh, let's go back. I know, I'm about to tell you. I'm looking myself here, friends. Okay. Well, let's, let's look at the second half of verse 34. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Verse 36. Joseph, a Levite, right, a member of the tribe of Levi, from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means quote, son of encouragement. So you need to circle that name. Barnabas is a significant person. You will meet him again. He is a traveling companion of Paul's for a while. So he is being introduced to us here, not just to introduce him, but because he serves as an example, an archetype of this giving. Because, verse 37, Barnabas sold a field he owned, 
brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Which means, put, why does it say, why does it say he just dropped it on the table? Why does it say he put it at the, put, put it at the apostles' feet? Because it's a, it symbolizes giving it over to God. That's what it is. All right. All right, my friends. Anything else on chapter 4 before we go to the story of Ananias and Sapphira? If I had an, like, you know, if I had uh, uh, an organ to play here, you'd be getting some really, <laughs> some really creepy music would be starting up. Ooh. I, shall, I have one slide of this story I should have brought, but anyway. All right, so, you ready? Let's do it. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. Just like Barnabas, right? Just like Barnabas. With his wife's full knowledge. That's, that's an important phrase. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Third time we've heard that phrase in the last five verses. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart? How is it? How's, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart? You know, Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. He's been preaching. He is functioning as God's prophet. And as God's prophet, God enables Peter to discern things that you and I might miss. Peter says to Ananias, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? Lied to the Holy Spirit. Remember when I, right at, back at the beginning, nearly so of this Acts series, I said the Holy Spirit is a who? Not a what? You don't lie to a chair. You don't lie to electricity. You don't lie to nuclear power. You don't lie to any of those things. You lie to persons. To persons. And so this is one of many reminders in the, in the book of Acts um, that the Holy Spirit is a who it is God the Holy Spirit is God's empowering presence how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land didn't it belong to you before it was sold and after it was sold was it the money at your disposal so what has he done? What, a, what, what little plot did he and his wife cook up? Well, the plot was they took their house, sold it for $100,000, kept, kept $40,000 and turned $60,000 in and said that was, the, that was the whole proceeds from the sale. Maybe they wanted to be like Barnabas, you know, kind of 
kind of getting themselves all puffed up. They want the recognition. Look what we've done. We have this house. We've sold the property. And yes, 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 yes. This is everything. Just like Barnabas. Doesn't say that explicitly, but just like Barnabas. Laying it at the apostles' feet. But Peter sees through it. Then it belonged to you before it was sold, and after it was sold, was it the money at your disposal? Nobody's required to sell property. There's nothing wrong with Ananias selling the house for $100,000, keeping 40 back for him and his wife, and giving 60 to the feeding of the poor. Nothing wrong with that. Nobody's making him do anything. It is the lying part. It is the deception part. It is the trickery part of this that Peter discerns. You have lied to the Holy Spirit. What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. Dead, dead, and dead. Now, whew. in the history of the church, this was usually read as being about, in some way, Ananias being smited by God. But does it actually say Ananias was smited by God? No, it doesn't actually say Ananias was smited by God. What it says is, when he is confronted with the fact that he has lied to God, he, he fell down and died. So I think a better way to understand this is, the, is a story we were talking about, talking about this in Numbers yesterday, that sin has consequences. Some of them are, are immediate, some are not, some are smaller, some are larger, um, some might take years to see, but sin has consequences because sin at, is about not loving God, not loving your neighbor, not living in the way that God has made you, created you to live. And when you, when you live in that sinful way, there are consequences. It's the, it's, the, it's, the, it's the way God made the world. There's moral causality in the world. And Ananias' sin bears immediate consequences. I could just easily, easily weave a tale where he is in such shock at being found out that he strokes out. I mean, they don't know about strokes and all that stuff. He strokes out right there on the spot. He's so shocked and so emotionally upset. Being called out by Peter in front of everybody when he envisioned himself, you know, oh, look who Ananias is. Look at all, the, look at the wonderful thing he did. It's a little bit like the story um, uh, in the book of Esther. When Haman thinks that he's going to be riding through town on a beautiful horse and instead ends up on a 70-foot pole impaled on it. Anyway, read Esther. 
Yeah. Being that Ananias was a Jew. Yeah, they're they're all Jews. Raised a Jew. Maybe, maybe study Torah. Look at what Peter says. I can, here's how I picture the scene. Ananias walking in, feeling really good about himself, putting this down. Oh. And the first words out of Peter's mouth are what? It doesn't even start by saying, Howdy, Ananias, how are you today? <laughs> Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart? And by then he's going, <laughs> I don't know. We, all, we, all we really know is what? That he heard it. He heard this condemnation by Peter. He fell down and died. And great fear seized all, seized all who heard what had happened. You bet it did. You bet people are pretty freaked out. This is not an everyday occurrence, is it? Scott, this has a lot of symbolism to Adam and Eve. Well, I mean, it does in the fact yeah. that, you know, I mean, Ananias, Ananias um, essentially rebelled yeah. against God. It is all, whenever any of us fail to love God and love others, it, it all is a reminder of Genesis 3. Genesis 3 is the beginning of it. It's for me, for Ananias, for you, for all. Sure. Well, verse 6. Then some young men came forward. They wrapped up his body and carried him out, and they buried him. Now, they would have found a tomb somewhere and put him in it. Doesn't matter where. Nobody matters. Nobody cares. He had lied to the Holy Spirit. He had lied to God, not, not just the human beings. That would have been one thing. We all do that. He had lied to God. Okay, well, about three hours later, his wife came in. Now, what have we already been told about his wife, Sapphira? She is in on it. She's a co-conspirator. Complicit herself in this. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? The, to use my example, the 60000 She said, yes, that is the price we got for the land. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen. The feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they're going to carry you out also. And at that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Whoa! Now, the obvious, I mean, you know, when you come to the Bible, you're not really supposed to look for some sort of moral lesson in every little story. It's not like Aesop's fables. Often the writer's just telling you what happened. There is a theology in it, but in this case, the moral is pretty good. Easy to see. Don't lie to God. Right? So, 
Let's pursue that for just a minute. Yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, 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 we. I, I think the place where something like this is going to manifest itself the most is in our, surprisingly, in our prayer life. When we, I've had people say to me, well, I can't pray to God about that because I don't want God to know. See, God knows. You, 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 can't, you can't deceive God. You can't deceive God. God knows. So our prayers should be honest and open and forthright. You should be able to pray to God. That means to if, you need to, if you need an image, we'll use Richard Foster's. It's like going into your grandfather's you know, room and sitting down in, in a little rocker and talking to your grandfather and sort of burying your heart and telling your grandfather things that you might not tell anybody else. That, that gets to the heart of prayer right there. And so it has to be, it should be, it's a gift. Prayer's a gift because we can be open and free and truth-telling but you can't deceive God. Can't deceive. You can deceive people, but you can't deceive God. God is at work in this community. And Ananias and Sapphira have broken bond with this community by their lie. Right? So. Verse 10, at that moment she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Well, I bet it did. You know, it is... They are part of something that had never been seen. The world is not the same on this side of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. And, and the presence of the Holy Spirit in the community, the presence of the Holy Spirit in each believer is new. New. And the power of God being displayed in this way is just, is just remarkable. Um, and now this couple has come and they've broken bond with the community and maybe, maybe they both just stroked, stroked out. I don't know. But I understand that they both fell down dead when confronted with their their deception, attempted deception. Okay, who has anything to add to that? Charlotte. I have a question about the Holy Spirit. A question about the Holy Spirit. Christians are filled with the Holy Spirit. Are they the only ones who can have the Holy Spirit? Can non-believers 
Well, let's not just use the word appear. The Holy Spirit dwells in believers, in Christians, in the disciples of Jesus, the true Christians, true believers, true disciples of Jesus. The Holy Spirit dwells in them and in no one else. No one else. Now, you can't say, well, the God, does that mean God can't work elsewhere? God can work wherever God wants. But it's the believers in whom the Holy Spirit dwells. It's in the Christian community, the body of Christ, that the Holy Spirit dwells. Tabernacles is a word that ties it to Mount Sinai because God would dwell in the tabernacle. But now, it's not the tabernacle, it's not the temple, it is the body of Christ and it is believers. But that doesn't put restrictions on how God might work in this world. God, God hears the prayers of people. That's God choosing to... I'm not one of those who think God only hears the prayers of Christians. I don't find anything in the Bible to say that. I mean, the whole purpose of this is to get everybody in, right? Not to keep people, not to keep people out. So, but when you are reading your New Testament, that's how you need to see it. It's a, the same little problem we can run into with a common phrase, the children of God. In the Bible, the children of God are only first the Israelites and now the church, the believers. The children of God is not a phrase that speaks to humanity written large. I mean, you, you can use it that way if you want. But if you bring that meaning to your New Testament, for example, you will not read it correctly because that's not the way they use the phrase. The children of God are the brothers and sisters who comprise God's family, which is the body of Christ. Is that helpful? Yes? No, the Israelites, later the Jews, where was God present? If you went to a Jew in 30 AD and asked them, well, where is God dwelling with you? In the temple. The temple was God's dwelling place. That's where they would go to meet God, right? Now, the high priest would be the one who did that. But that changed with Jesus. Paul writes, what does he say about us? You, your body is a temple of God. Because he's talking about now God dwells in each person, in each individual believer in the person of the Holy Spirit. And, else, and secondly, in 1 Corinthians, that God's Spirit Return, it dwells within, within the church. So that, that changes. So many things change because of the climactic nature of Jesus' incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection. It is like this giant cosmic event. You should expect little to remain the same when you get to the other side of Jesus' incarnation, 
crucifixion and resurrection. And Paul is the one, more than any, who wrestle with the implications of that for the world, for the church, for the believers, for himself. That's what Paul does. He is the one who's going, oh my gosh, well, what does this mean for us? Is that helpful? Yes. Okay, good. All right, so anything else on Ananias and Sapphira? All right, well, verse 12. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. It's not over, it won't be over for a long time. This age of miracles as it were. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. There we go. In the temple. No one, this is interesting, no one else dared join them. Even though they were highly regarded by the people. Now what is that a hint at? What do you think? For me, it's a hint at the probably the growing suspicion that people have about these Christians, which as the years and the decades mount will go further and further until by 70, 80 AD, the Christians are being, people are saying, you know, they come together and they drink the blood and eat the flesh of their God. That's almost like they're cannibalistic and stuff. Um, and certainly, when the Jews in Jerusalem really listen to the words of Peter and the believers, it's not surprised that they're, that they're hesitant and they're apprehensive and they, they, they stay away. It's sad but it's not surprising to me. Verse 14, Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord, they put their faith in the Lord, and were added to their numbers. So the community is continuing to grow despite, what? Increasing hesitation among the Jews in Jerusalem. Verse 15, as a result, people brought the sick into the streets. What did people do with the sick in that day? Not much. There wasn't much you could do. Oh, you could, you might sit with them, but the only people you would ever sit with were family members. There were no hospitals. There were no clinics. Nobody sat with anyone who wasn't their family because they knew quite well that sickness breeds sickness. And so they stayed away. Um, they might anoint a sick person with oil. I don't know that, I don't think that has any healing power. It's just what they had. They didn't have anything. And of course, they loved, as we love. They loved their mothers and sons and daughters and husbands. Of course they did. They loved, and people had seen what had been happening. 
So they brought the sick into the streets and laid them in beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow would fall on some of them as he passed by. Now before you say to yourself, well that is like nutty. In the ancient world, a person's shadow was understood to carry something of that person. These were very, oh, I don't know that I like using the word superstitious people, but these people were, did not grow up in the medical, scientific, logic-shaping Western world that you and I did. These people lived in a world in which the world that they walked in every day was separated from the world of spirits and, you know, fairies and the rest of it by a thin veil. And they had very different beliefs about how the powers of this world and the powers of the other side of the veil worked. And yes, so it is not shocking that they thought that if they could at least get Peter's shadow to, to go across them, their love, their beloved sister might be healed. It's not unlike the story of the woman who had, in the Gospels, who had been uh, hemorrhaging, basically having her period for 12 years. All she wants to do is touch Jesus' garment. She believes that if she merely touches Jesus' garment, just touch the hem of Jesus' garment, crawl on her hands and knees through the dirt to touch the hem of Jesus' garment, then she would be healed. That is the way their view of the world is. It's not yours, it's not mine. Um, but it is what you see depicted here because this comes, these writings come from that world. Well, crowd, verse 16, crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem. Of course they did. Just think back about the last big healing story of the guy who had been crippled from birth. Forty years he had been. And he was healed. And the, the authorities didn't know what to do with that. So now from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits. How would they know whether somebody was tormented? In the world 2,000 years ago, how would they know if somebody was tormented by an impure spirit? Because of the way they behaved. Do they know about epilepsy? No, they don't. But they knew that something was wrong with the person. That the day we were diagnosed with epilepsy and treat with a drug, but for them, no. The, the, but it would be obvious to them that something is terribly wrong with this person. Their sister, for example. And so they would bring that person to be healed. And their understanding of those kinds of things were that the person was had an impure spirit or extended to demons or something in themselves. Now look at the last line. The crowds have gathered from Jerusalem, surrounding towns, and all were healed. Now what's that phrase about? That phrase is about the expansiveness of what is happening. Is there something 
hyperbolic about that? Probably. But it's still, it's big and it's happening. And it presents the authorities with a big problem, right? They tried to shut it down earlier by telling Peter and John to simply not proclaim the gospel anymore, not do any of this in the name of Jesus and so forth. So it's not surprising then, given what's happening, verse 17, well then the high priest and all of his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. I don't know the Greek here, but I'm going to substitute the word envy, because I love that word. I don't like the sin. I like the, I like the word envy. I like the a definition of envy from uh, a theologian at Notre Dame. Envy is feeling bitter when others have it better. And if you watch dramas, anywhere, you will see that envy is often a key plot, plot point. It's the key plot point in, uh, how many of you seen the movie Amadeus? Anybody? Am I like that? Okay. Amadeus, great, great movie. Watch this movie. It's all about the envy that Salieri has. He is ripped apart by bitterness over what God has given Mozart but has not given Salieri. That's his view of things. Yeah, it's a great movie, great movie. If you haven't seen it, you should watch it. If you have seen it, rewatch it. So, what do, they, what do the authorities do? Verse 18, sure enough, here we go. They arrested the apostles and they put them in the public jail. Now this jail is just, the, it's, I don't know what Lou Sterrett is actually downtown. I'm glad I don't know more about Lou Sterrett than I do. <laughs> But this kind of public jail is just a place to hold. They, would, they had no prisons, really. So you would generally be maybe put into a cell until they decided what to do with you, which generally meant either let you go or um, maybe off with your head. Some people were held under like house arrest. That happens to Paul. He's basically sort of like on restricted, you know, do comings and goings. So, they arrested the apostles, put them in the public jail, but during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. And what does the angel say? Go, stand in the temple courts and tell the people all about this new life. So the angel Sent by God is basically telling them what? I'm letting you out of jail. Get back out there and keep it up. Go into the temple courtyards and talk about this new life that we have in Christ. Go, go, go. What doesn't the angel say? This is, be not afraid. That's an interesting aside because usually that's the first words out of the angel's mouth. Be not afraid. But not in this case. Just go. Go, 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 stand in the temple courts, tell the people all about this new life. Well, verse 21, at daybreak, they, the apostles, entered the temple courts as they had been told, and they began to teach the people. All right, I can picture that. 
Crowds are gathering, of course. There's so much hullabaloo, so much activity, healings, sermons. I mean, my gosh, wow. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, who meets, they probably meet, inside the temple proper. This is the full assembly of the elders of Israel. And they sent to the jail for the apostles. So they show up in the conference room in the morning and they tell the temple guards, go and get those guys out of jail and bring them in because we've got something to say to them. Verse 22. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and they reported, quote, well, we found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. That's interesting. Of course they're at a loss, but notice it doesn't say Luke doesn't say, wondering how this happened. Their focus is on, what is this going to lead to? What's next? I'm, I, think it, I think we're supposed to take from this that they really have an abiding suspicion that this in, is God's work with the apostles. Where is this going to lead to? What's going to happen next? Then someone came. Maybe they poked their head in the door of the conference room, I don't know, and said, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. Just imagine you're at the door. How sick are you of dealing with this? Right? You, just, you, would, you would like it to be the end of this, but it's not. So at that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. They probably didn't need to use force. I imagine the apostles simply came, but it does highlight that the authorities are nervous about the crowds, just as the authorities were nervous about the crowds in the hours leading up to Jesus' crucifixion. The crowds matter. The crowds matter. So when we come back next week, we will see these apostles standing before all the uppity-ups again. And there's going to be a very surprising twist this time. It's not going to go like it did last time. It's going to be a very surprising and um, appropriate twist. So, all right, my friends. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, as we leave here today, let us just never, never try to put you in a box. Reduce you to, to some imagining that makes perfect sense to us. Nice, small little box. Yes, we understand every little piece of this. Let us be open. Let our minds grow. Let us have big imaginations. 
and understand that indeed you are God and we are not. And yet you have come to us, you have revealed yourself to us, you love us, you took on human flesh for us, you were crucified for us. You suffered for us. Help us to understand that indeed we were all bought with a price and make us ready to do our part in boldly proclaiming in word and deed the good news about Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. 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 Uh, <coughs>